Let's get into Galatians. Uh, we start off Galatians chapter 2 now, verses 1 to 10. Uh, let me pray before I begin. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that we can come and we can gather and we can hear your word. Lord, we want to be transformed by it. Lord, we thank you that it's living. Lord, I pray the same thing every week, but I pray that these words will be yours, not mine. Lord, we just want your spirit to come, Lord, and, and do work. Lord, let our hearts and our ears and our minds be open to what you have in store today. Let us not miss out. Lord, let us be challenged and let us grow. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. If you don't have your Bible, I have it here on PowerPoint for you. Eventually, it's going to come. Yes, there we go. And it says, Galatians 2, 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem again, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus also. I went in response to a revelation, and meeting privately with those esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I wanted to be sure I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favoritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognized that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised. Just as Peter had been, been, had been, to, be, to, had been to the circumcised, for God who is at work, or the un, yeah, circumcised, for God who is at work in Peter as an apostle, to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Have you ever wrote a letter or maybe have written a paper or even maybe even left a message on someone's answer machine and you, they started to ramble on and it feels like it's kind of like, what, are the, what were they saying in the letter? You know, maybe the spaghetti string led you a different way, right? I hear that women's minds, everything's connected. And so it's like, how did you get to that point? Kim's like, well, this is how I got to that point. And I'm like, I, I'm still stuck like opening my box. And so, but this first 10 verses kind of has that feel to it. It feels like, like, what is he saying? Like, he kind of like rambling on in a sense from chapter one, right? Hey, chapter two starts and he's like, 14 years later, like, it's like you're talking to your grandpa, right? Like in 14 years and we can even look back to verse five and six and it says, I'm going back one more, maybe. Nope, we're staying right here. And verse 6 says, As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God's not show, God does not show favoritism. They had nothing to my message. And then verse 9 and 10, he's like, here we go. It's going to happen. Promise. Maybe not. Can we go? Yes, we did it. 
James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. The very thing I've been eager to do all along. It's like, it feels like it's jumping. It feels choppy, his letter, a little bit. He's like talking about his message and then he's like, yeah, those guys, you know, the God shows no favoritism to these guys. And then he's like, yeah, they esteemed me to go and tell this message, but you know, I got to remember the poor too. It's like, man, where is he going? Like this letter is making, like it's starting to jump around a little bit. And so Paul throws in verse 10, like it just feels like it's, it's, just, it's crazy. Like just remember the poor? Like we're talking about your gospel. We're trying to make it right. Trying to make sure it's the right gospel. And here he's saying remember the poor. And so they were saying he was, they were cool with the message that he speaks. They wanted him to remember the poor, which he was eager to do anyways. But what connects everything together in these 10 verses is this word Grace. Paul says they recognize the grace given to me. Grace is a huge word that we're going to uh, expound upon today. If we go back to Paul's main point, if we go right to what we've been talking about, like Paul saying to the Galatians, hey, this is the real gospel. Like, don't believe in, believe in those guys who say you need to be circumcised in order to accept. It's like, no, this is not what it is. You don't need to do all these deeds. You simply by faith alone in Christ. And these pillars, they recognize the message he brings because they recognize the grace that he's been given. So they reached this resolution. Yeah, Paul, this guy is legit because they saw grace. They saw grace within him. So obviously then, it's important to see grace. Right? We talk about this seeing grace. But you know, we talk about this faith, right? And it's believing that we not see. We didn't see Jesus come as the Messiah, but we believe and so when we want to see grace, we see the, what faith has produced. What faith in Jesus has produced. If we want... Oh, here we go. Maybe I'll just leave this to Bonnie to, to go through. Uh, my clicker is not working. If we want to live a gospel-rooted life, we need to be able to see grace. And if we're going to navigate our way through this complex world, we need to know how to spot grace. Like the ability to see grace will impact virtually aspect of your life, every aspect. It will impact how you spend your time. It will impact how you spend your money. It will impact how you pray. It will impact what church you join. It will impact your, how you assess your own spiritual health. It will impact how you parent your kids. It will even impact how to make difficult decisions like in tough times. Seeing grace is an essential life skill for gospel-rooted people, right? When we see grace, it reminds us, and it reminds us of, man, God did something. God did something at work. Like, we're just praying for Chris and Laura here, and they're heading off. Like, they went, and they thought this was just a one-time thing. They're going to go. They're going to help some friends. They're going to do this for a couple months. But they were impacted because they saw grace when they were there. They saw these kids. They saw their life, the fruit that was coming from it. They thought, saw discipleship happening. They saw something change within the kids, and then something change within them. And so now, seeing grace has impacted how they live. 
It has impacted what they do. They go for two months now for the third straight year. They take their kids out of school. And then they, Laura takes two months off of work. And Chris goes out two months away from here. And they leave here to go do something there because they've been impacted so deeply by what they've seen. And we talk about grace all the time. I love preaching about grace. Grace, the free gift of God. Uh, that comes through salvation, not something earned or worked towards, no religious acts. You receive the gift of salvation just by the grace of Christ. You can be saved, but you have to be willing to reach out and receive what Christ has done for you on the cross. You receive it by faith in Christ. We preach this all the time. We love talking about grace. I started the series talking about grace, the grace of the cross. But what was the process that they saw grace at work, how did they see, how did the, how did the church leaders see grace within Paul? We don't always understand the other side of grace. And this is what we're going to pound home today, which is recognizing when grace is at work. Realizing grace at work. Realizing God doing work. The pillars of faith could recognize the work of grace through Paul. What did they recognize? How did they do it? One of the ways they recognize grace is through someone that Paul brought. His name is Titus. The first thing to look for, here we go, the first thing to look for in seeing grace is the advance of the gospel. This is how we see grace, first off. We see the advance of the gospel. We know we're seeing grace when we see the gospel of Jesus Christ advance in the lives of people. When we see it spoken, when we see it, people accept it, and we see it grow within people. We know it's grace when we find faithful sharing of the gospel with believing response to the gospel. We know it's grace when we see a person or we hear a person come under the conviction of sin and put his or her trust in the Savior of Jesus Christ. This is how we begin to see grace. When these kinds of things are going on, we are seeing grace. When we see the gospel shared, we're seeing grace. The gospel advance is what these Jerusalem leaders saw in Paul. They saw it. They saw him advancing the gospel. They recognized the fruit of Paul's ministry on par with Peter. That's huge for them. But it wasn't simply the stories that they heard from the communities that had said, you know, this guy, Paul, he's doing an amazing work. Like that guy who used to be against our faith is now for our faith. That would have brought, yeah, oh, wow, this is, that's amazing. They would have heard that. They'd be like, that's great. They, but there wasn't like charts that they saw, like these are the people that, got, are, that are now saved because of Paul's ministry. There wasn't like a report back, this is you know, how far it's advancing now. Surely the pillars of the early church were also hearing the rest of the churches in Judea had heard that this guy who had persecuted them is now preaching. And not only that, his conversions are not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full of conviction. They're hearing this about Paul. To a certain extent, yes, they would have saw grace in those moments. But they saw grace most clearly and most concretely somewhere else. Not just in the stories about conversion, but in the people who had been converted. They would have looked at this guy that Paul brought, Titus. They would have saw him. They would have heard his story. They would have seen this living, breathing proof of Paul's fruit, of Paul's ministry, of this guy who was now against the faith, now for the faith, is sharing about the faith, and people are being saved. They see it now in Titus. They have this picture of grace. 
They would have heard how he, a Gentile, Titus, is now a believer in Jesus and how he is growing in his faith. And then this is the picture of grace. And so a huge thing, a one way that we see grace, one amazing way we see grace is through discipleship. Discipleship is a sign of grace. The leaders saw, they saw Titus and they recognized grace. Living, tangible evidence that they could touch, even though that would be weird. Oh, wow. Grace. <laughs> like, and, but they didn't do that. That's weird. I would have done that, but not these guys. They're more classy than I am. And so, the grace of the gospel now showed through the evidence of Titus' life. So the big question is, the question that we can write down, the question that we can ask ourselves, the question that we should always be asking ourselves is this. Do you... Like the Apostle Paul, have a Titus. Because we are all called to have a Titus. We are all called to have someone that we're discipling. We're all called to disciple somebody so then others can see grace through that person. Someone who's proof of the effectiveness of your life as a disciple maker. And it's not like I'm disciple king, but it's through the work through Christ in you, now working in that person that shows the faith and grace of Christ. For some of us, Titus might be our spouse. For some of us, Titus might be our kids. For some of us, Titus might be your parent. Maybe some of you, Titus is your neighbor. Maybe some of you, Titus is your classmate, your colleague, or someone that you just have met, and now you just get together and, and have Starbucks and talk about Christ, or even just talk about life. Maybe some of you are someone else's Titus, and we all actually are. Proof of another person's gospel-rooted living. But the thing is, is who are you discipling? Who are you discipling? Like, I recognize I'm leading my family. I'm leading them. My kids, they're my main disciples. My wife, we're discipling together. But my discipleship doesn't stop there. Mentoring people, having people into my home, talking to people about Jesus, talking about life, it is, it is one of my favorite things to do. I love getting together with people and walking with them. It's hands down, I would do it every day of, I do it with my kids, but I could do it every day, maybe not even taking a nap. But I can think of the faces of people who discipled me. I can think of who've opened up their lives to me and how it's changed me and how it's transformed me. I can remember uh, meeting my pastor, knowing I wanted to get into ministry and being like, going up to my pastor and being like, hey, I need your guidance. Like, I want to be in ministry. And then he looked at me and he said, awesome. Do you want to go to Portland? Like, as I was processing that, I should have a lot more pain and hurt because he pre I asked him to disciple me. He sent, wanted to send me away. Uh -oh. <laughs> I'm not sure if that's the quality of the person I was, or maybe he just overflowed with disciples. No, it, he realized at that moment I had nothing hindering in my life for me to go to Bible school. And so he challenged me as someone who would be a good discipler to do something maybe that was uncomfortable for myself and go all the way to Portland. And so in the midst of that, though, while I was waiting, he gave me an opportunity to speak. And I remember the first time I speak, spoke, and I'm glad it was to a bunch of teenagers. Because the quality of the message, I'm not sure how quality it was, but I remember my one point. 
And my one main point was, when we pray, it's like kicking the devil in the nether regions. <laughs> but I didn't use nether regions, I used basketballs. But I didn't use basketballs, just drop the basket. And so, <laughs> this was my first sermon as 20-year-old Jeremy. I'm so glad it was the teenagers. I'm s there was lots of talking after. <laughs> Discipleship was taking place. It was a beautiful thing. That's all I could say. And so, <clears throat> but this is what discipleship looks like. When someone makes a mistake or when someone is growing, you're with them, walking with them, talking with them. And I can remember some of the people I've discipled. And it's not about me, but it, like it's about those examples of who you have like been able to walk with. And you know what? It encourages me. And it, I realized, man, I didn't do that on my own. I can remember one guy. His name is Mark Sarnata. Mark, if you're watching, you know it's you're a great testament of the work of the Holy Spirit. Um, he came into our lives as a youth pastor. His parents separated. Um, really, just a lonely kid. But you could tell he had such joy in the, that was in there. And so we just invited him to be part of our life. He's a part of our life. We walked with him. We talked with him. We had the opportunity to counsel him as he was getting married. And now he is living in a place called Kipling, Saskatchewan, working at a youth center, being part of his church. They go and they help at youth events. And so this is discipleship. I, I'm not sure what Mark would say if I wasn't in his life. I'm sure somebody else would maybe pick up that mantle. But I know he still comes and connects with me even to this day. Discipleship, a sign of grace. A beautiful thing. The Jerusalem leaders, they saw this in Titus. They were saying, the message Paul speaks, we know it's true because we see the grace of God in Titus. We see grace. We see it. And just like I mentioned two weeks ago, our stories are the best argument for the gospel because it is living proof. It is living proof. Proof. Living, tangible proof of the message that we've received of the glory of God on Christ, or Jesus on this, Christ, on this cross. I need a sip of water. I'll say this. It might be bold. It might not be that bold. It might be, but I think it's really true. I think it's 100% true. People are longing to be discipled. There is a longing in everyone to be discipled. Because everyone is following someone. Which is why small group is awesome. Because it gives you the opportunity to disciple. Shameless plug for, for small group. To invite people in. To chat about life. To have coffee. To have dessert. To have chips. Whatever it is. But to sit down around someone's table or on their comfy couch and to talk about life. And who knows what will happen. Maybe there will be a connection with somebody there. Then maybe discipleship will start happening outside of that place too. We can change the world through discipleship. It's an amazing sign of grace. As we disciple our kids, church, co-workers, our friends, we, we see grace at work. All right, another way that we see grace is found in verse 2. In verse 2, it says this, I went in, to, I went in response to a revelation. That might pop up there. It did. What I want to highlight is this word revelation. What was this revelation? What was it about? The book of Acts tells us it was a prophecy that a famine would hit all of Judea and thus Jerusalem itself. As a result, many would be hard hit 
because of this famine and would be without food. And so Acts 11, 27 to 30 says this. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So this explains then why Paul was in Jerusalem on this particular occasion, this 14 years later. He was there on ministry of mercy. He was delivering famine relief. He was meeting the needs of the poor saints in Jerusalem. Thus, the main reason he went up at this time, like I said, 14 years, was to present the leadership of the church with some help. A bag of grace, in a sense. Maybe some money, maybe some food. And this was born of the sacrifices by the believers in the church of Antioch. Not only Jews, but Gentiles as well. He literally came with something. Physically with something. This then, like Titus, became a very concrete and compelling proof of the fact that God's grace was at work in Paul's ministry. God's working in Paul's ministry. This is not a prosperity gospel. This isn't like if you give a thousand dollars, you'll read gold grace level five. Like this isn't, this isn't that. This is a question about am I sacrificial, obedient giver? And it doesn't mean just money. Am I obedient to do what Christ has called me to do? Even though it might make me uncomfortable or may make how I live uncomfortable, even though it might cost me, even though I feel like I have nothing. We can see grace in obedience, in sacrifice, and in giving. I have one friend who I went to Bible college with. Uh, he was starting to grow, I guess you can say in, I don't even know what you would call it, a status in a sense, a Christian status, let's call it that. He was becoming known as, as a good speaker. He was going to camps. He was uh, maybe going to take a job at this headquarters for youth to work there. Like, he was growing comfortably for the faith here. Not it was uh, comfortably, but he was starting to gain his name a bit, I guess you can say. But then this moment came when they encountered what was going on in Turkey. And they, they could not shake what was going on in Turkey. There needed to be the gospel. And so they prayed about it. They dropped it all and they went. They gave up a, what we call a lot here, maybe status-wise, money-wise, comfortability-wise, and they went to somewhere totally uncomfortable because they knew that they had to give because they heard of the call. Obedience, sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 8, 1 to 8 says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. We want you to know the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Grace being a key word for the Macedonian churches. How do they get it? In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. Their overflowing joy, but their extreme poverty welled up in generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and even beyond their ability. 
entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service of the Lord's help. No, we want to do this. Yeah, we're giving a gift to this. It might be more than we can handle, but we're doing it, is what they're saying. And they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. So we urged Titus, just as he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also to completion this act of grace on your part. But since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. How did they recognize grace in this passage? Through the giving. Through the generous, abundant, overflowing giving. Paul spotted grace in the generosity of the Macedonians. Even though they were financially hard-pressed, they still gave generously to meet the needs of others for the glory of God. And this grace sighting caused the apostles' heart to sing. Brought them joy. But it also provides them the perfect opportunity to exhort the Corinthians to do likewise and excel in what he calls an act of grace. To give. Whatever it looks like to give. I heard one commentary ask this question. This is a... This is a a hard question. If the Apostle Paul or the leaders of Jerusalem to review how we spend our resources, our time, our treasure, our talents, would grace be what they see? This makes me squirm. And like, it's not me, like this makes me squirm. Which is perfectly okay. I should squirm. Because now I'm confronted with the question I need to work through. This is challenging. It's okay, though. We see grace and sacrificial obedience in, we see grace and sacrificial obedience in the service of Christ. It is the clearest, least ambiguous expression of the grace of God in the world. This is because sacrificial obedience is the most concrete and therefore the most tangible form of grace. We can, we can see it, we can feel it. We understand it. This is the kind of grace we not only see, but the kind of grace we can touch and even handle. And the leaders in Jerusalem were met with an act of grace relief in a tough time. They could touch it. They could feel it. They understood it. The last way is we see grace. It's the way we see grace is found in verse 10. And I'll begin to close with this. I say begin because it's happening. I promise. Paul mentions that the leaders ask him to remember the poor, the very thing he was eager to do. If you were to guess, like, the one thing that the leaders would maybe exhort Paul to do after they have met him, would you think that would be it? Like, Paul's talking to them about his gospel message, talking to them about, hey, is this right? Does this line up? And then they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But hey, I want you to remember this one thing before you go out. Just remember this one thing. Would you guess it would be to remember the poor? Like I said, it seems like that odd thing as we've talked about these first 10 verses. And he says, Paul, it's the very thing I was eager to do anyway. So it didn't feel like a request at all. But another confirmation that they shared, Paul and the, the, the Jerusalem leaders, that they shared 
the same cause in the gospel. The gospel and poor connected. Eager is a strong word, very strong word. It's a clear resolve and a willingness to do whatever it takes to accomplish that. I'm eager to do that, right? The eager be what is it? The I don't know, eager beaver, eager worm. I don't know. I'm just making up sentences right now. And so the eager worm get the eager eager bird gets the worm? I don't know. Is that the Oh, the early bird gets the worm. It's going to sip my water as I recover from that. Anyways, he's eager probably. <laughs> Remembering the poor has been viewed sometimes as unrelated to the point at issue in Galatians. And it may be immaterial to the conflict. Again, what is the point of Galatians? It's about the gospel. But Paul is saying the gospel and poor are connected. It's connected. The gospel causes us to prioritize the poor by enabling us to identify with the poor in our own poverty. Because we came to know Jesus because we first recognized we are poor and needy. We recognize that we are poor and needy. What the old hymn says, come ye sinners, poor and needy. The gospel causes us to confront our own poverty. We were extremely poor, needy, without anything before we met Jesus. That was us. We were deeply impoverished because of sin. The gospel causes us now, now we know the gospel, that we've accepted the gospel. The gospel causes us to share with the poor out of our abundance because now we have everything that we need. We have Jesus. We have everything. Now anything else is just, what, sugar, cake, icing on top? Man, my analogies are terrible this morning. I apologize. Because they understood the abundance they had in Jesus. They understood the abundance they had in Jesus. And when we realize we have everything we need and more because we have Christ, Jesus Christ, it is easy to give to those who have less. And that's what we need to realize. We have everything we need. Therefore, we can give abundantly. The gospel doesn't challenge us to give to others what we ourselves don't have. It challenges us to give to others what we've already received in abundance. The gospel calls us to say, to like with Peter did. Remember when Peter, he met the poor man on the side and he asked him for money and he's like, I don't have any silver, but what I do, I have, I give you. And he was talking about the message of Jesus. Regardless of our financial situation, regardless of maybe how much money we have in our wallet, our purse right now, we always have the name of Jesus to give away generously and freely to whoever, whoever asks even to those who don't ask but need Jesus to heal their wounds. As we read the Gospels, we see Jesus pursue the poor. We see him very connected to it. He pursued the poor, first off, by becoming poor himself. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for the sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. Poverty was an essential part of Jesus' earthly ministry. He wasn't rich. He wasn't even middle class. He didn't have a place to lay his head. 
He didn't have cars, let alone two or three. He didn't have a smartphone. He didn't have a retirement savings. He had nothing, but he had everything. Our Lord was poor. He had no illusions or misgivings about it, nor did he want his followers to have any illusions or misgivings about it either. This is why he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. We constantly see Christ minister to the poor. And this is our challenge. This is I'm, maybe another bold thing. We should be the champions to help the poor as followers of Christ. We should be championing this. I'll invite the worship team to come up. What should we do? How should we do it? First, we should focus on gratitude rather than feeling guilty for what we have. Sometimes we feel, oh, I just feel so guilty for what I have. Many of us, we've, we've been given a lot. The tendency is to feel guilty because of what we have when we see how much those around us don't have. We want to resist that temptation. Guilt is not a good or God-honoring motivation. We don't want to work out of guilt. Instead, cultivate thankfulness for all that God has given us because thankfulness paradoxically, it frees us from having to hang on tightly to what we, to what we have. When we're thankful, we just freely give. Not guilty. Uh, I guess I should give. When we take our eyes off the gift and we put it on the giver, we realize we need to always focus on Jesus. We, we become very thankful giving people. We realize that gifts aren't the, the thing that keeps our joy everlasting. Secondly, we should open our eyes to the plight of the poor. We need to recognize this is, a, this is a severe thing. This is something that's happening. We should simply stop and see the plight of the poor in our community, in our city, in our country, and in the world. We need to recognize it. We need to, we need to see it. It'll challenge us. Third, then we should open our lives, maybe even our homes, to the poor and invite them in. We need to, we need to talk to these people. We need to, to see where they're at. We just need to be open. I heard this story. For those who know Bill McNairn, he uh, attended the church here. He just recently passed away at the beginning of this month. Um, went to his, I guess, I don't know what you call it, uh, at Jeff and Heidi's house, uh, kind of like a remembrance memorial for him. And Jeff started to tell stories of people who had talked to him once they heard his dad had passed away. One story stuck out to me. It was, I believe, in Winnipeg, where Bill was at. Met some man, poor man on the side of the street, where he was connected with this, poor, this man who had nothing somehow. And Bill invited him into his house to live. Then this man got his life together, got clean, got everything, I guess, pointing towards Christ. And so Jeff received a call from this man. He found out Bill had died. This man now lives in Minneapolis. He is a well-known, wealthy artist. And he said, without your dad, I wouldn't be where I'm at today. We see discipleship. We see obedient, sacrificial giving. We see someone helping the poor. And through that, we see grace and an amazing story grace to see it it will cost us it cost Jesus on the cross 
It, it, there's something about us that's going to have to die to disciple, to give sacrificially, to help. But man, that story should, should ignite us. Those people that we know, that we've had discipleship with, man, that should change us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that even faith, yes, faith is simply that we do not see, we didn't see you die on the cross, but we believe it. But through that, we get pictures of grace. When we see lives change, when we, we give freely, and we see it help others on the other side, when we open, we talk with those who are down and out and invite them, maybe for a meal. We get pictures now of grace. And so, Father, I ask, Lord, even as we leave this place today, Lord, and as we maybe go to our small groups this week and we look at the questions and we talk about them, but we just want to keep this on the, our minds. We want to be able to see grace in pictures of it. And so, Lord, I thank you for those who have discipled me, Lord, when I'm sure people are thanking for those who have discipled them. But let us go and do likewise. Give it in all freely, just as you did. In 